Thank you for tuning in again to the Word of Life Ministries podcast for another Spirit-filled message with Rocky Brown. All right, now with that said, with all the pleasantries aside, no, just kidding. All right, so, <coughs> you know, you all know that how the Lord, you know, sometimes He takes me down funny pathways to get messages, right? So, I was listening to that song, Still Got a Reason to Praise, and there's a catchphrase in that that is used, I hear regularly. And, I, and I'm not going to lie to you, normally, when I hear people say this, it grates my nerves, because it's spoken from a position of, mm, it's... it's not necessarily, we don't want to pick at anybody that says it, but, well, let me just tell you what it is, and then I'll tell you how, and then I'll break my thoughts down about it. So you'll hear this, you'll hear this statement, well, you know, God's still on the throne. Well, what does that mean? What's that mean? We develop nuances, we develop sayings, we, we go along with stuff, and we don't even really know what we're saying. Because we just, you know, it's almost like a lot of people's Christianity is like a stage act. And they know what to say at what moment to make it look like they're somewhere they're really not. And so, and we're not trying to poke fun at anybody by any stretch of the imagination. But we want people to see what the truth is because the truth does what? You will know the truth and the truth will what? It will make you free. All right, so then you might say it like this, is that the only thing that will make you free is the truth. All right, well, what if you're, what if you're defending a stronghold or a position that either is a lie or you don't even know what you're talking about? You know, I mean, you all have your respective trades that you do that I don't know anything about. And you all could start talking to me about your job, and I'm going to understand some points. And I'm going to be able to engage in conversation with you to some extent. But now I've been in the trades, the construction trades, over 25 years of my life. You know how long it takes me listening to someone talk to realize they don't know much of what, what they're talking about when they're, they're talking to me about my industry? You don't take long. Usually within about five minutes, I can tell whether someone knows what they're genuinely talking about or not. I can tell by the way that they use, what terminology they use, how they use the terminology, and how they present their case. It don't take long. And if you pay close attention to this fight of faith, this walk of faith, all this different stuff, you'll come find out. It don't take you long to figure out what people really believe and what they don't. It don't take long. My spiritual father says it like this. When you tell me what you believe, you tell me where you set your ceiling. Think about that. That was exactly the same face I made when Robin first said that to me. He said, when you tell me what you believe, you tell me where you've set your ceiling. Don't believe in healing? You've set your ceiling. Don't believe God provides? There's your ceiling. You see what I mean? This is your ceiling is your cap, right? So we got to break through ceilings to grow, right? So as I was thinking about this, and man, I mean, I've been jamming that song, Reason to Praise for, oh gosh, Probably a solid month. I've listened to that song probably 200 times. It just blesses me. 
And you know, there ain't nothing wrong with that. Don't feel guilty about that. If you have a song that's blessing you and encouraging you and strengthening your faith, and you want to listen to that thing 1,500 times, you just do it. As long as your worship is genuine and true. You know what I mean? So, as I was listening to that song, of course, you know, there's that line in the song that says, you're still on your throne. So I still got a reason to praise it. So I hear people say that. And I'm going to be honest with you. That phrase, when I've heard almost everybody say that, rubs me the wrong way. It's like petting a cat backwards. Have you ever tried to pet a cat backwards? Get a cat by the tail and pet it up the back one time and see how well the cat likes it. The cat does not like it. Dogs are like, oh, I'll just pet me any way you want to. You get a cat and try to pet it across the grain. It just skims the same way. Oh, I understand. <laughs> yeah, go. Yep, yep. Well, I mean, there it is, and the truth shall make you free. So I want you to think about what, what, how have you heard people use this phrase? Well, you know, God's still on the throne. Some. Oh, that's all right. So good. So we'll be able to break some of this. This is good because we're going to be able to. We'll be able to teach you right. Oftentimes, I hear this term used when evil is running rampant. Okay? Well, you know, God's sovereign. God's still on the throne. Well, what are you saying? Are you saying that he's okay with what's taking place? You see what I'm saying? Are you saying that He's okay with what's taking place. Are you saying that he's turned, he's on the throne, but he's turned a blind eye to sin, wickedness, unrighteousness? You know, it's important for us to understand. You know, the end is coming. The king is coming. And lawlessness will abound. This is indicators to us Sin and lawlessness will abound. That means it's going to keep getting wilder and wilder and bigger and bigger, right? And it's for us to understand that when we look at that, we go, oh, this is mile markers for us, ladies and gentlemen. The more that we see lawlessness abound, the the more we should know and be looking with great anticipation to the fact the king's about to return. And that could be 50 years. We don't know when that's going to be. But we'll see this thing, and we'll see it. We'll see sin abound. We'll see lawlessness abound. But what are we saying when we say God's still on the throne? What does that mean? You know, I'll hear someone say something will happen to someone. Maybe something, you know, maybe something um, traumatic or devastating will happen. God's still on the throne. Well, what, what are you saying? That he, that he commissioned that? He ordained that? Does that make sense? I see, a, I see the gears are turning. The gears are turning. But so from the perspective that we're going to talk about this, what can we get from the scriptures about the statement that he is still on the throne? Let's think about it. Let's talk about it. All right. So, 
think about it like this. Um, I've got, I'm going to read from my notes here directly. Uh, as I've commonly heard this said, it is usually associated with an incorrect viewpoint of the sovereignty of God. That is seriously echoing in there, isn't it? It's like the Lord is like reverberating that. I, maybe someone in there is getting it. And what I mean by this is, unfortunately, that many believe that every event that takes place or every circumstance that occurs is a d divinely approved or ordained by God. God is sovereign, right? We've heard that statement. But friends, this, not everything that happens is approved of or ordained of God. It's important to understand that. We know that God is not an advocate of rape, the murder of the innocent, even the murder of the wicked, molestation, or anything sinful or wicked. He's not okay with it. So then to claim that these things are happening because God is sovereign is to really charge him with sin and wrongdoing. Because it's saying he's putting his stamp of approval on it because he's permitting it to take place. He's not permitting it to take place. We are. Isn't that something? Think about this. We know that it's not God's will that any should perish, right? 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning his return to some count slackness, but is, is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, do all come to repentance? Do all believe on the Lord Jesus? No, they don't. So here you have a statement of what God's will is. And you see an action of man that is out of line with what God's Word says, with what God's Word says His will is. All right, so another common meaning I've discovered that people associate with this term is that when trouble comes or they fall under attack from the adversary, that saying God is still on the throne is that eventually God's going to get around to doing something about their situation. It's kind of the way they view it. Let me ask you this question. So let's start here. I got you all thinking. <laughs> you know, not everybody all at once. I can see that you, you are overwhelmed by this, and, and you're ready to shout and take off dancing. But follow me. What is a throne, and what does it signify? The statement is God is still on the throne, so that must be important. I mean, is it important that he's still on? I mean, is the throne important? God is still on the throne? Well, what's a throne? Oxford Dictionary defines a throne as a ceremonial chair for a sovereign bishop, a sovereign person, bishop, or similar figure. A throne is also used to signify sovereign power. All right? So when... I don't want to get ahead of myself. I see the gears grinding, though. I see people like I, like Regina's eyeballs just started like this right over there. So, All right, Webster's <laughs> Dictionary defines a throne as the chair of state of a sovereign or high dignitary, the seat of a deity, or royal power and dignity, or sovereignty. All right, so a throne is a symbol of authority of the one who sets on it. So it's a symbol. 
For the Zondervan Bible Dictionary said this, for the ages, through the ages, the throne has been a symbol of authority, an exalted position, and majesty. So a throne is a symbol of the authority of the one who sits on it. All right, so what makes a, what makes a certain chair, because that's what a throne is, it's a chair, it's a place to sit, right? So what makes a throne or a specific chair, what causes that thing to be a symbol of authority? It's because the one who has authority has set that as a symbol of their authority. For example, this chair right here. These chairs have no names on them. Now, if the United States government came in here and plastered a sign on that one that said President of the United States, you better not sit in it. Because if you walk in there and that chair is for the President of the United States and you plop your rear end in it, they're going to jerk you right back out of it. Aren't they? Why? Because the one who has the authority has set that as a symbol of their authority. Are you with me? So when we think about it, we think that a throne is completely worthless without the stamp of authority from the one who has the authority to say it's a symbol of their authority. With me? Kind of like a police officer's badge. That police officer's badge is a symbol of that officer's, officer's authority. That the authority that was invested in that badge by the agency who has the authority to say that this person that carries this badge has the authority to do this, this, and this. And if you think that your authority is greater than those, they will send other people with other badges that will come and get you. They are prepared to send as many as it takes to arrest you. Right? So if this is a seat that is used to signify power and authority and sovereign rule, let's define what sovereign rule is. What is sovereign rule? Well, when we hear the term that God is sovereign, oftentimes the statement that's attacked, that what these people are meaning is, is that God is all-powerful, and he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, whenever he chooses, because he's sovereign. But is that the case? It's not the case. He can't do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Why? Because the authority that he put on his word says that he can't. He can't lie. He can't sin. He can't save you against your will. Right? So then... The all-powerful God that can do whatever he wants whenever he wants technically is not all-powerful and cannot do whatever he wants whenever he wants because if he could, then all of this would be wrapped up and we'd be in our homecoming. Hallelujah. But he has stated in his word that you must believe in his son. So that's the qualifier for salvation. See that? Is it his will for you to believe in his son? Yes. Is it his will for you to be washed in the blood of Jesus? Yes. Is it his will for you to spend forever with him? Absolutely. Emphatically a thousand times over. Yes, it is. 
but he has established with his authority through his word that says that you're going to come through this channel. There is no other way. There is no negotiation. This is the way that it must be done. And God does not break his word for anybody. (laughs) So then what does sovereign mean? Because that's how the modern church defines the term sovereign. So sovereign, really defined by Oxford, is a supreme ruler or especially a monarch. One possessing supreme or ultimate power. Now we're going to break some of this down. Or possessing royal power and status. Well, all those things would be ultimately true of God, would they not? Those are a true statement of God. Webster's defines it as one possessing or held to possess supreme supreme political power. One that exercises supreme authority within a limited sphere. One who is possessed of of supreme power. All right, now if you've been following the Job study on Sunday nights, there's something that you're going to find out that is is a theme that runs all the way from chapter 3 to chapter 37 really probably 34, because it's, the context, it's, the, it's in the scope of the conversation between Job and the three friends, that you see accurate statements about God used in an inaccurate way. Let me say that again. You see accurate statements made about God said and projected in an inaccurate way. So what they do through the course of the book of Job is they make accurate statements about God's ability, but, in, but also inaccurate statements about His character and nature. For example, you know, chapter 8 in Job, Bildad says, if your children had not transgressed, God would not have cast them away. Well, God didn't cast them away. See, there's these statements about God's goodness and mercy and power and might and all this all the way through all these chapters of Job, but they're skewed with the perspective of the adversary. Let me give you an example. Jesus is in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten anything in 40 days, so he'd probably really like to have a Chick-fil-A sandwich at the end of 40 days. I don't blame him. Popeye's chicken's good too. So the first encounter that we see The adversary says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So then the adversary switches gears, pulls Psalm 91 out, and quotes it to Jesus. And he says, well, it is also written that if you throw yourself down from here, his angels will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The devil straight up quoted Scripture to Jesus. He didn't distort it. He didn't pervert it. He didn't twist it at all. He straight up quoted the scripture to Jesus. And Jesus said, it is also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So the adversary took a true statement about God's ability and tried to tempt Jesus with distorting God's nature. This is deep, isn't it? This is why we must be able to discern the word, right? So then correctly, correctly defining the sovereignty of God. This is where we must be careful because we can inaccurately and incorrectly define this and in doing so, 
we charge God with wrongdoing. That's also another theme throughout the entire book of Job, is four people charging God with sin and wrongdoing. So let me ask you this question. Is God the supreme ruler of the, of the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is? Yes, beyond our limits of our comprehension, emphatically, yes. Does God hold supreme power and authority? Yes, but this must be understood and correctly interpreted. His absolute power and ability to render righteous judgment can supersede his own personal will. For example, 2 Peter 2.9 says, I think that's 3.9, 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So this tells us that it's not God's will that any should perish. But we know that some do, and that by their own choice in rejecting to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So we could say it like this. God does indeed have supreme power and authority. The time we see him exercise this power is in judgment. That is always in line with his word, which can at times supersede his own will. God has the ability to do what is right, no matter how much it may hurt him to have to do it. Someone's free, someone's free will can override God's own will in certain situations, but not his power and ability to judge that one for their choices. So let me explain that. What has made the statement is made is that that, what did we say, all right, that God's ability to render righteous judgment is greater than his, can supersede his will. Kim's sitting there looking at me like a toad frog in a hailstorm. Let me prove this, okay? Here's the statement. God's ability to render righteous judgment, he has the capability to use that and supersede his own will, all right? Someone steps out of this body and they have not believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, while they were here, it was his will for them to believe on Jesus and go to be with him forever, right? That person steps out of their body. They have not believed on Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now God steps in with righteous judgment, and that person is judged righteously, and they are righteously condemned to hell. So his ability to render righteous judgment is... He is able to supersede his own will. That's deep, isn't it? So God has the ability to do what's right, no matter how much it hurts him. And we always go back to the pinnacle. What's the greatest thing we can talk about? Salvation. So God's, it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But if you do not, you have now your free will has overrode God's will, and now he must step into the position of righteous judge. And now he's going to use the power and authority that he has to render righteous judgment. Have you ever heard anybody say anything like that? <laughs> he's still on the throne. Let me prove that to you, that someone's free will can override God's will. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. 
Is this good? Are y'all learning anything? Mark 6, starting in verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And with what wisdom is this which, which was given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. And then Matthew 13, 58, write this down in your notes. This is, the same, this is Matthew's account of the same situation. It says, Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So the unbelief of the people in the region was able to trump the will of God to work miracles. Let me say that again. The unbelief of the people, they chose, they saw, think about what it says, they heard the wisdom with which Jesus spoke, they saw the works that were performed by his hands, and they were offended because they knew him. And they chose not to believe, and in choosing not to believe, God, through His Son, could not work any mighty works there. So it was God's will to do it. It doesn't say God would not do any mighty works there. It says, he, it says the Lord could not do any mighty works there. Could not. So then think about it like this. The judgment from the throne was, I want to do miracles here, and the people said, we don't want them. And God's will was superseded by the free will of people, and people lost out. And so what happened was, is this. God's will was to heal people. The people chose not to believe, so righteous judgment came and said, nothing will be done here except you'll lay hands on a few sick people, and they'll recover. So his ability to render righteous judgment can supersede his own will. That's great. That's wild, isn't it? He says, okay, all right. You don't want to believe? It's fine. But I have the authority to judge you eternally. And think about this. In the life of the believer, how many times have you stepped into judgment because you refused his will? That happens. See, people think that the that judgment doesn't come against the believer. No, judgment comes. You get into sin and error, disobedience, wrongdoing, judgment's going to be issued from the throne. Not from the chair. From the one who sits on it. See that? Stay with me. <laughs> judgment can be rendered in a situation on behalf of the Christians nowadays, or you see it as rendered on behalf of saints in the Old Testament. Judgment can be rendered against, against a Christian who is in sin or disobedience. 
Well, what's judgment? <laughs> it's to give a decision concerning a defendant or a legal matter. A decision made for, now this is something that, this is something the Lord said to me yesterday as I was working on this. Judgment is a decision made for or against someone by one with authority to enforce either a reward or form of correction or punishment. So we think judgment, we think bad. But you know, that's not always the case. Have you ever had a prayer answered? Have you ever been praying about something, had a prayer answered? God move on your behalf? What happened? Do you know what happened there? Judgment was issued from the throne of God on your behalf. A judgment was made on your behalf. And that's how your prayer was answered. Didn't think I ever thought about it like that, had you? Judgment was made on your behalf. All right, so let me show you something. So I'm going to talk to you. Man, this is, is, this is kind of deep, isn't it? Is this kind of hard to take in? <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, when I spend too much time, uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I get in deep water sometimes <laughs> when I get into this, right? So <clears throat> let me show you some cool stuff about the throne of God. Because I want you to see the throne, but really, I'm trying to paint you a picture to get you to look at the one who's sitting on the throne. I thought this was going to be one message, but it's not going to be, Mark. It's going to end up being two, as best we can have it, right? All right, so go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, and you're going to start looking. You're going to go to verse 9. But I want to tell you that in the eight verses up to this, you see four beasts coming out of various places from the four corners of the world, all of this, and you're seeing these things taking place. These evil beasts are, are, are causing things to happen, right? And you see, you're seeing all kinds of stuff that we, we really don't understand as far as being on our, on our side of it. But chapter 7, verse 9, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, Starting at verse 9, it says, I watched until the thrones were put in place. Now, Daniel is in the spirit seeing what's taking. Daniel is seeing into the realm of the spirit, watching what is taking place. Not in real time. He is seeing something that's not taking place at the moment in which he's standing. <laughs> this, is, this is getting kind of deep, isn't it? All right, so verse 9, it says, I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. All right, has anybody ever heard Jesus called the Ancient of Days? We got one out of three. No, no, yes, no. All right, has anybody ever heard the term Ancient of Days besides Ken? Okay. <laughs> this is good. I like it. So the Ancient of Days commonly is misinterpreted to be Jesus. And I say misinterpreted to be Jesus because the Ancient of Days is not Jesus. And I'm going to prove that to you right here in the light of the text. All right, it says, And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His, what? Throne was a fiery flame. 
its wheels a burning fire. <laughs> Mark said this thing. Mark said wheels. <laughs> it's got wheels. <laughs> it's got wheels. It says a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So the throne of God is set and he is the ancient of days. God the Father is the ancient of days. And I'm going to prove that to you. Because see, here in Daniel 7, 13, go to, jump down to verse 13. Now there's some content here that we skip, but I want you to see this. I'm trying to paint you a picture about a certain thing. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So we know who the Son of Man is, right? That's the Lord Jesus. And he's coming, and he's now he's standing before the Ancient of Days his father. And it says, and he was brought to him before him. All right. So Mark is still, Mark's gears is still grinding and wondering what kind of rims is on this throne. <laughs> so I can see it now. Has this thing got like five star mags? What's this, what's this thing got? <laughs> Spinners. We got spinning rims. <laughs> but listen, I'm about to trip your lid even more because go to Revelation 4. Is that pretty cool though in Daniel? Go to Revelation chapter 4. <laughs> chapter 4, verse 1. Kim's sitting there and she's like, I don't even know what to even think. I can see that look on her face. <laughs> but we're going to prove it inside the word. Revelation 4, chapter, or Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, now you got to remember, let's start here. John is on the Isle of Patmos. He is a political prisoner that has been exiled by the emperor to Patmos. Does anybody know why John finds himself on Patmos? History tells us, this is cool. History tells us that the apostle John at this time is somewhere in his 90s. And he had a house in Ephesus. Actually, it was outside of Ephesus on a hillside. Now, this is church history. And he refused to burn incense at a certain temple that was ordered by the emperor Domitian at the time. So they take the apostle John, and Domitian was known for his cruelty. So they take John, and they have this huge cauldron of scalding oil that when they threw people in, it was so hot that the flesh immediately separated from the bones and they had a drag hook that they would throw in that pot and pull the bones out. <laughs> well, they throw John in there and put that drag hook in and pull John out. And John wasn't hurt. <laughs> and, and it scared the emperor so bad that they sent John to Patmos as a political prisoner in exile. And then... And then about 18 months later, that ruler would die and John would be set free. <laughs> Can you imagine the look on that brother's face when they pulled John right back out? 
John's like, hey, what's up, y'all? How y'all doing? <laughs> but when John is experiencing this with Revelation, and it's the Revelation, it's not the book of Revelations, as is commonly misquoted. It is the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word here for revelation is apokalupsis, and it means a revealing of something that has never been seen before. That is what revelation actually is. So people think that this is like the book of Armageddon, blah, blah, blah. It, it, that's a small part of it, but revelation is, again, translated from the Greek word apokalupsis, and it's a supernatural revealing of something that's never been seen before. Not necessarily by everyone, but by you. Now, in this with John, what happens here with John, yeah, this is a supernatural <laughs> revelation of something no one had ever seen before. You ever wonder? <laughs> you ever wonder what Jesus meant when he said, talking about John and the end of John's gospel, that John wouldn't depart until he saw the Lord's return? You remember reading that? So this was a rumor that John would never die until the Lord's return physically. But you know, in the Spirit, he sees the, he sees the return of the King. He sees all of this. That's why shortly after the book of Revelation is written, a handful of years, John dies, goes home to be with the Lord. He saw, people say, well, John never saw it. No, he did see it. He saw it in the Spirit. He was, so in Revelation chapter 1, it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard a voice coming from behind me like the sound of many waters, right? And then it turns around and he sees the Lord and you see the, there's the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. It's the conversation about the churches, blah, blah, blah. So then it says, when we pick up in chapter 4, it says, after these things. So he's talking about seeing Jesus walk in the midst of the seven lampstands, right? And we have the messages that's given to the seven churches of Asia, Right? John says, he, now he's still in the Spirit. And he says, after these things, I look and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. He's already in the Spirit and now he sees a door open in heaven. It tells you that there's three heavens, three realms of, uh, there's three realms. The natural, then the realm of the spirit, which is where angels and demons and blah, 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 and this and that. All of that takes place. Then there's a third realm called the kingdom of heaven. John is in realm number two, watching the Lord walk in the spirit amongst the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches in Asia. And he's sitting there watching the Lord do this, and then all of a sudden, he hears this voice and says, come up here. And he looks, and there's a door in heaven opened. <laughs> this is deep today, isn't it? So then John goes on up there. So he starts out, he's in the natural, he starts out on the island of Patmos, He's praying, gets over in the Spirit, sees the Lord, the experience with the lampstands, gets the messages for the seven churches, and then, he's, then God says, 
hey, come on up here. Right? Video's about to die. So he says, hey, come on up here. So then we see, all right, he says, and immediately, he says, come up here when I will show you things which must, must take place after this. He says, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one set on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. He's describing to you what God looks like. <laughs> so in Daniel, Daniel describes the throne and then begins to give us somewhat of a description of what God looks like. But John here says that his appearance was like a jasper and sardius stone and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw the 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. John is describing to us what the throne room of God looks like. And he's describing to us what the throne of God looks like. And he's describing to us what God himself looks like. <laughs> and in the midst of the throne... And around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, now listen, he's going to describe to you what these creatures look like that are hovering around the throne of God, each having six wings, were full of eyes all around and within and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, now he's going to give you a measurement that there's no duration of time to God, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying you are worthy O lord to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created so in the statement he's still on the throne there's a lot happening there's a lot going on See that? But see, we're focusing on the one who sits on the throne. That's where our focus needs to be. On the one who sits on the throne. So 11 places in this chapter mentions, it mentioned, 11 places in this chapter mentions the throne of God. And three references out of those 11 
specifically reference the one who sits on it. So remember, a throne is completely worthless without the authority of the one who sits on it, putting their stamp, this is my seat. This is where I sit. You see this in a courtroom. Who sits in the judge's seat? The judge. Who sits in the judge's seat that's not the judge? The person that goes to jail. (laughs) Because if you go up there and try to sit in the judge's seat, you're going to jail. Why? Because the authority of the one who sits in that chair separates that chair. See that? So the authority of the one who sits on the throne is really what we should be focusing on. But it's really cool to know that God's throne possibly has spinner rims, like Mark just said. (laughs) All right, so check this out. We're going to wrap this up here. We're not going to get anywhere near I thought what I was going to. Does anybody get anything out of this? <laughs> it's good. because So go to Revelation chapter 5. And it goes on to say, in verse 1, I, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. You notice how it keeps rooting back to the one sitting on the throne. That's important because where we're going to go with this is very, very, very important. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Now listen very carefully. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. All right. Where'd he come from? Where'd he come from? It just in the verses before it, it just told you that there was no one in heaven, the earth or under the earth that was found worthy to open the scrolls. So where did the lion of the tribe of Judah just come from? (laughs) Uh, No, no, because it says no one under the earth, in the earth, or in heaven was found worthy to to open the scrolls. So where was Jesus? The Lord showed me this last night. And I about fell out of my chair. You know where he was? Paradise. Abraham's bosom. The place set aside to the side of heaven where the saints went before they could be resurrected because Jesus' blood hadn't been shed. Today you'll be with me and paradise wasn't heaven. No one had been to heaven, Period. So no one in heaven, no one in the earth, and no one under the earth was found worthy to open the scroll. It's because when he came out, he came out of paradise into heaven. Because when he died, 
he was made the sin of the world. We're going to stop right here. This is going to trip your lid. And we're going to pick back up next week. When Jesus died, he was made sin. He was made sin before he died. His first stop when he checked out of his fleshly body was hell, which is under the earth. Then when he handled business there, he went to paradise because he had to go to paradise to preach the gospel to the saints. He went to hell and preached. Then he went to paradise and preached because all those saints over there in paradise, they hadn't heard the gospel. They had never heard the gospel preached. They couldn't believe on him and whom they'd heard because they'd never heard him preached. So they had to hear. They had to hear the proclamation of the gospel. Do you believe? They didn't just get a free pass to heaven. Remember over there in John's gospel, it says when Jesus came out of the grave, all the saints came up with him and were saw in Jerusalem. <laughs> so he goes to hell, which is under the, he leaves the earth. He goes to hell, which is under the earth. Then he goes to paradise, which is not heaven. So here, when this is stated, Jesus is in paradise. But the proclamation is, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll. So he came through paradise, and he's on his way to heaven to do what? Take his blood into the holiest of holies in the temple in heaven, offer it on the altar one time for all time. That's deep, isn't it? We got deep water right there tonight. <laughs> Let me stop this and then we'll do some questions because this camera's about to die. I pray this message strengthened, blessed, and encouraged you. You can find Word of Life Ministries on YouTube and Facebook. Just look for the guy with the cowboy hat on. <laughs>